I want to say at the outset this morning that the sermon I want to preach today is actually only one part of a two-part series for this this week and next week. We sometimes call it the Holy Week or the Passion Week where Jesus went to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he preached in the temple and then on Friday he was actually Thursday night it was it was communion it was the Passover night then Friday early morning he was uh, judged he was tried and judged and then by the end of that day he was laid in a borrowed tomb killed on a cross Jesus did not have a very long ministry his ministry was actually quite short started about when he was age 30 and he served as a traveling preacher healing the sick teaching about the love of God his ministry lasted a very short time, only about three years or so. And at the end of those three years, he made his way toward Jerusalem, knowing full well that this would be his final trip. This would be it for him. He would now wrap up his earthly ministry. And that's what we want to talk about today. One of the things to notice about Jesus' character, Jesus' life was, wherever he went, he walked. He was a simple, ordinary human being, as Lowell read for us during the uh, singing already, Isaiah chapter 53. He, he was nothing special as far as appearance to look at. He was no great uh, person of um, popularity or anything like that. He had a popularity, there was a popularity season in his life, but generally speaking, he wasn't much to be seen, he wasn't much to look at. But this particular trip, this particular journey that he made to Jerusalem was different. This time, he went as a king. And he showed the people who he was. His authority, his character. He was the king of the Jews. He was the king of the universe, but he came as the king of the Jews to Jerusalem that day. He came as royalty, in humility, riding in a donkey. So today we'll look at that part of the story where Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, and how he was received, and how that played itself out. Jesus knew that this would be the end of the ministry, of earthly ministry for him. And so this Sunday, we want to look at what happened when he walked into Jerusalem. What happened? Next Sunday, we want to look at what was the result of his ministry in Jerusalem. How did that play itself out? And so we're part of the story in some way. One of the things that we have that the people of that time did not have is They did not know what the outcome would be when Jesus walked into Jerusalem that week. They did not know that when he walked up to Jerusalem, they were shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They were shouting and praising. They did not know in a matter of a few days, from Sunday to Thursday, on Friday they would be yelling for his death. They would call for his crucifixion. We know this story, but they did not. But before we get too comfortable and say, well, yeah, they got it wrong, and they they should have known better, they should have done different. Before we get too comfortable with ourselves, before we allow our thoughts to get too deep in that direction, we need to remind ourselves we're in just as much danger of getting Jesus wrong as those people were. And I want to just repeat that. We are in just as much danger of getting Jesus wrong as those people were. So why do I say that? Let me just give you a simple illustration. I talked in our adult Sunday school class about our imagination and how powerful the imagination is and how God has gifted us and blessed us with an imagination to use for his glory, and we should use our imagination. But so often we imagine things and we get it wrong. We construct our own worldview 
of a life that we imagine should be real. Now, all of us here have some kind of an imagination. I'm sure you could all say that you've imagined something to be at, in a certain way at some point in time, and I was wrong. You would say, well, I was wrong. You imagined it this way, and it was different. The problem with the people in Jesus' day, they had their mind made up. They had read the scripture, they had studied the scripture, so they were imagining what this king of the Jews would be like when he would come. So they welcomed Jesus, get this carefully, they welcomed Jesus for what they expected him to be. They welcomed Jesus for what they expected him to be. And then when it was different, they rejected him. Next time we'll talk about the rejection part. Well, the Pharisees rejected him from the start, but generally speaking, the people thought, okay, here comes their Messiah, here comes the king. They imagined him as a Messiah. That was their imagination. But the king that he really was was different than they were expecting. They were waiting, anticipating an earthly Messiah who would do great things for them. They would establish a secure earthly physical kingdom such as King David had. He would be a king. He would give them freedom and prosperity and security and all those good things. That's what Jesus would do. They were expecting that. And God wanted to set them free. He wanted to give them freedom, but a spiritual freedom and a heavenly kingdom that they couldn't even begin to think about. That, that was far beyond their imagination, their, their thinking. Maybe we would say to ourselves, yeah, okay, but we are different. We, we're different. Let's not say that too loudly. Let's try a very simple comparison. Take, for instance, our culture. When I'll use a very simple illustration, and I'm sure you've seen this. Those people who write Sunday school curriculum, what picture do they write of Jesus? Maybe that's changed now, but when I was younger, I, met, uh, I, meant, um, um, I remember thinking back about Sunday school curriculum, how they illustrated Jesus. What kind of a character was he? Usually white. White face, white, white, white male, blue eyes kind of light brown hair, shoulder length, and dressed in white. That was the picture that people painted of Jesus. Now, is that accurate? Is that correct? I would say, of course not. We know better now, right? But then why did we draw him like that? Well, that was someone's imagination. Most likely, Jesus looked like an ordinary Jew. Most likely, he had the hair color of an ordinary Jewish man. Ordinary, the average Jew in the Middle East is a, is a, would have had maybe dark hair, black hair, brown eyes, dark complexion. One commentator mentioned this. He said, he looked so much like the ordinary guys, they actually had to take Judas along to point him out in the crowd among his disciples. Now, given it was dark, it's true, but they had lights. So he was so much like everybody else, the Pharisees didn't have to say, oh, we know who he is. Just, just let us, just tell us where he is. We'll find him. No, no. They actually, Judas went and identified him. We'll talk about that next Sunday some more, but Judas actually gave him a kiss to identify. This is Jesus. That's how ordinary Jesus looked. And in case we still pat ourselves on the back and we still think, okay, but we wouldn't do this, let's think a little bit further. And here's where I'm at odds a little bit with a lot of modern radio commentators and, and some of the more, um, um, I don't know how, what you'd call them, but um, why is it that in evangelical Christianity, Jesus is a Republican or a conservative? And why would some people like him to be a liberal or a New Democrat? 
or a Democrat. Why, why, why are we doing this? And this is Christians who are doing this. And I'm not saying this in judgment of anybody in particular, but I think it's very important that we don't pigeonhole him, that we don't bring him down to our level. We have, we're called to worship him, surrender to him, not shape and form him to our imagination. Some people would like a, this kind of a Jesus and that kind of a Jesus and this, you know, you know where I'm going with this? And so we get him wrong when we do that. We miss, we miss him. We mistake him. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's far beyond anything our human mind can even remotely imagine. But no, those guys, they wanted a Jesus who was a political Jesus, a social Jesus, an economic Jesus. That's the Jesus they were expecting. And someone who also hated the Romans. Of course, a good Jew would not like the Romans, and so they wanted a Jesus who would not like Romans either. And if he liked the Romans, then he was not a good Jesus. So I want to just tell us, tell us what kind of a Jesus are we worshiping? When the people, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, they just knew. They knew. But the Pharisees actually were a bit smarter than that. They didn't like him not so much for that because they knew he had something else up his sleeve. They were in that sense smart people. And they were kind of worried that their power structure was going to get out of balance if Jesus gained a following. But the sad reality was the Pharisees were able to sway the people by the end of the week. Jesus came totally different, with a different agenda, different mission than the people expected him to. And that's still the same today. And I think of all the people in that story, the Pharisees, the sick, the lame, we'll talk about that a little bit, then the ordinary crowd, and then the children, and then Jesus himself, that whole mix, that whole crowd, that whole multitude. I think the guy, or he's not a guy, but the one who struggled the most, the one who had the most pain was Jesus himself. Because one of the Gospels tells us, as he's walking to Jerusalem, he's weeping. Because he can see, they're, they're mistaking me. They're not getting it right. They're missing me. And he knew what their expectations were. He knew what they were going to do to him. And he wept, and he says, if only you had known. And the, and the people heard him say this, and they watched this, but they still mistook him. They did not get him. I simply titled my sermon this morning, Worship King Jesus. And the reason I did not put the word the in there, and, and my vocabulary is very limited. I'm not one of those guys who has this endless variety of words with which to articulate my thoughts. And so I thought about that. I just started putting the worship of the King Jesus. No. I thought, okay, let's, let's bring it closer. Because I know you wouldn't like it if I would say to you, okay, the Joe will come up and, and uh, lead in worship, or the Travis now will do the announcement. That, that, that's wrong. That's distancing it. No, it's Travis. It's a first-name basis. So we have to be careful. And again, I'm not saying this is perfect. Maybe the title is not perfect. But Jesus is King, and he's Lord. And so worship King Jesus. They got it wrong. So let's begin reading Matthew 21, verse 1. And let's read to the end of um, verse 5. It says here, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks, 
What are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He's humble riding a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. This was something Jesus did to fulfill the prophecy that had been made about him back in the Old Testament. It was not so much for Jesus' sake as for the sake of the people. Jesus didn't need this in terms of, oh, I need to remind myself. No, he needed to do this so the people would understand the story, the people would understand what was happening. They needed to be made aware, Jesus is king, he's coming into Jerusalem. And so this happens. During the three years of Jesus' ministry, very often he would stay away from these large public places. And, but on this occasion, very purposefully, very intentionally, very deliberately, he walked right smack into the public spotlight. Very intentionally. And he wanted the people to see and to know what was going on. And it was for a very good purpose. He wanted it to hit home, and they still missed it, but they wouldn't remember afterward, and that's what happened here. All of these, all of the people there in the crowd, they knew and understood, here comes Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, and they just knew he'll be king over Israel. That much they had. And they praised and glorified God from what they were expecting, not so much what he was going to do, but their world, this is what their world was. The people were excited, great anticipation, what's going to happen? Something was going to happen for sure. They just had no clue the shock and horror that would soon unfold by Friday morning. So that day, the whole thing, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, is a big celebration. It's a God-ordained event. He decided it, and his glory would shine through, and it did. Let's continue reading verse 6. The two, the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and colt to him, and they threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings in the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. This was the only time that we know of that Jesus was given royal recognition and acceptance in this way. This was um, the best that he'd ever been received in his three years of ministry as a traveling preacher and a teacher. So here he is riding on a donkey into the religious capital of the city of the Jewish nation in his time. And the people responded well. The crowds were throwing their cloaks on the road and the disciples had put their cloaks on the donkey and Jesus is sitting on it and he's riding into Jerusalem. The crowds are cheering and yelling. And Commentators say this was the kind of behavior people would demonstrate when they would welcome a hero into the city. Maybe a conqueror or a leader, a special person, they would welcome him in this way. And so Jesus got that. There are a few other things here that we need to be mindful of as we go through the story that give shape and color to the story that we need to know. And we know them, but we just talk about them so we, so we don't miss anything. This was also Passover season. Now, Passover season was the time of year when the Jews celebrated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, from King Pharaoh, many hundreds or actually thousands of years earlier, before the, during the time of Moses. But at this point in their nation's history, they were not an independent nation. They had been conquered by Rome years earlier and were still chafing under the Roman yoke of oppression. And they had to pay taxes. They could keep their religion, but they were still subject to Rome, and they didn't like it. 
And every Passover season was just another reminder. We want to be free. We want to be free. And we're expecting the son of David to come and set us free. And we'll be a nation again under, under our own king. And we'll have a nation that's prosperous and, and strong as we at one time were. And here comes Jesus, and that's the expectation. And it's in that backdrop, there's this backdrop of oppression and paying taxes to the Romans, and they didn't like it. And so Passover season in Jerusalem was always a volatile time. It was kind of an explosive situation. It was kind of a flashpoint extreme situation where it took very little to set this thing off and and there were uprisings from time to time from time to time some Jew would just be fed up he had it and he would gather a band of followers and then they would go after the Romans and they would they would start an uprising a little bit trying to hold a jar of nitroglycerin if you know what nitroglycerin is you handle it very carefully you bump it it explodes very dangerous. That's a little bit what the cultural environment was. And then right into that smack dab in the middle, Jesus walks, I'm the king of the Jews. What do you think the Pharisees are thinking? They didn't like it. They too would be only too happy to throw out the Romans, but they knew any such attempt would result, would result in a bloodbath. Retaliation and punishment by the Romans would be swift, brutal, cruel, and catastrophic. They did not want to risk it. They were smart in that way. They were very careful. This shaky balance of power they shared with the Roman authorities would not be compromised or threatened in any way. Romans themselves, they couldn't have cared less what the Jews believed as long as they pay taxes and don't fight. And so they didn't really care that much. But they kept their troops at the ready. And some writers say on special special occasions they would actually bolster and reinforce the troops in, in, in Jerusalem because anything could happen. So here's Jesus, the entire city is stirred up. Let's read verse 10. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. We can only imagine what the religious leaders must have felt or what they were thinking. No doubt this means trouble. That controversial adversarial man, Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi has come. He's into the city. He's in the city. Danger. Watch out. Be careful. And it was true. The whole city was in an uproar, stirred up. Everything was going on. Jesus being worshipped. The, the crowds are shouting. The rumors Jesus is a king. Passover week. It is the worst time of year for this to happen. It couldn't get worse. The Jewish leaders yet had no idea what's going to unfold. They had worked so hard at keeping this system functional and stable and balanced with the Romans. And now here comes this 37-year-old Jewish rabbi. What's going to happen now? Jesus has come. It electrified the city. Everything is, is tight. Everything is an, is an excitement to the highest point. The religious leaders are on edge. They know what's at stake. They're worried about losing the shaky balance of power. And as I mentioned, it was not that the leaders were were naive or ignorant. They knew. They knew. They had heard of this Jesus. And it made them shake. And they were angry. This was the same man who made audacious claims. He claimed to forgive sins. He he was okay with people disregarding some of the Sabbath laws and traditions and whatever else they had. He was kind of doing things his own way. Like forgiving sin, that's blasphemy. And they were very much aware, very much afraid, very angry. You know how sometimes you think things are as unpredictable as it can get? It can't get worse. 
It's as bad as it'll get, and it's only got to get better, got to get better from here. It's at that moment the unthinkable happens. It's one more thing. Well, Jesus the prophet had risen into, into the city. The, the city's in an uproar. Everybody's shouting and yelling, and the Pharisees are worried. The Roman troops are at the ready. The crowds are cheering and celebrating. And then it gets worse. Notice what he does next. And this is the worst insult. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. That's the trigger. That's the panic button. Who would have thought? Who could have guessed? Who would have predicted this? Who would have believed it if it had been told? Oh yes, he's a controversial figure and we'll have to deal with it somehow, but we'll get through this. We'll manage this. But no, he causes the problem. Talk about insult. He attacked the system. Couldn't he just at least ease off a little bit? I mean, it is already so volatile. It is already so, so dicey and so, so shaky. Now he has to create this yet. What in the world's going on here? And why was he so intentionally and so deliberately attacking a system that worked seemingly okay for the Jews? I mean, they had constructed this system. If you wanted to come from far away, offer an offering in the temple, maybe a dove or a pigeon, I mean a goat or a sheep, whatever, an ox, you could buy one. You didn't have to, from who knows how far away, bring one in. You could buy one. There was this money-changing business going on. You couldn't use Roman money to pay the temple tax. You had to use temple money, and so there's money exchange going on. So it was a system that functioned, so to speak. Why did he have to destroy it? I mean, interfere in such a drastic way. And there were still God-fearing Jews in all of this. Remember, 30 years before, this had been going on for many years, perhaps. There was the prophet Simeon. There was the prophetess Anna. Not all Jews were bad people. There were God-fearing Jews. But here comes Jesus. He attacks this thing, and he knocks the tables over the chairs, and he says, you, you've made my house of prayer den of thieves. I think if I was a Pharisee at that time, I might have had a meltdown. First, he claims to be the king, makes this out. Then he comes and destroys our system. What right did he have? Jesus had a problem with what was going on. That's why he wept when he went to Jerusalem. That's why he went into the temple and did what he did. The people's minds had shifted. There was a idol worship going on where they worshiped self more than God. And he wanted them to see that. See, upturns, he, he didn't hate those people, but he wanted them to come to an acknowledgement of the sin they were involved in. And they were not worshiping God. They were worshiping materialism. They were worshiping themselves. They were in it for themselves. And the priests were guilty. The Bible says that um, numerous times we find in the Gospels, Jesus calls them hypocrites, greedy, hypocritic people. Now, he walks into this place he turns it all upside down. The thought that um, came to my mind as I was meditating on this, but is there a lesson here perhaps? I believe there is. We, you and I, can get so focused and wrapped up and absorbed and obsessed with our own personal lives, we take Jesus out of the equation. We may not do that thinking we're doing that, but it happens. And then finally, God has nothing to do anymore with our life. God is not part of the equation anymore. Paul writes to the Corinthian church that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And if we are that, if we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, I'm wondering if Jesus comes and lives inside, what's he unhappy with? What needs to be cleaned out? If my body is a temple that Jesus wants to live in with his spirit, then how clean is it? How devoted and dedicated is it? Is it a house of prayer? Or is my body a den of thieves? But it was not all bad. Not everything was bad. One writer puts it this way. When Jesus had cleaned out the temple, there were those who came to him. Let's read verse 14 and on. It says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They were mad. They asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures for they say you've taught children and infants to give you praise? Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. I don't know how many hours this thing lasted, how long this thing was, we can imagine, but it's not the point. What is interesting is Jesus never once lost focus about the purpose for what he came and what he wanted to accomplish. And it's interesting that those who should have been at the forefront to recognize King Jesus, they were the last to acknowledge him, or didn't have to do it at all. Those who should have been the first to welcome Jesus, those who should have been the first to receive him as king, who should have fallen and worshipped him, been an example to the whole nation, they rejected him. But those who we could expect not to know, those we could expect not to be aware, those we could expect to not have been trained or taught, those, they came and they gave him the recognition that was rightfully his. The lame and the blind, they were receptive, they were open to him. They received it. The children. They got it right. It's not without reason that Jesus says, whoever wants to come to the, get into the kingdom of heaven will have to do it as a little child. And it's not the miracles went unnoticed. The Pharisees noticed them. But they still rejected him. They took note, eyed him with anger and mistrust. They were not pleased. But the children, the children, they got it right. They worshipped. No fake, no pretending, sincere, honest, joyful celebration. The cities in the turmoil has passed over time, and this Jewish rabbi is in town, and the leaders are angry, they're worried, and he's causing a lot of ruckus. The temple ministry is all turned upside down because of him. And the children, they celebrate. The people still liked him. He was still popular, but that would end by Thursday, by Friday morning. And next Sunday, I want to continue with that. But let's, but let's just stop here. What, maybe somebody wonders, why does this story matter today, here, now? Here's why this story matters. You see, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. We're still the same human beings they were. Jesus is still the same Jesus he was then. There's no shortage of people who have their own Messiah they're expecting for all the wrong reasons. There's still people who would love Jesus to come and make their life great, make my life great. But they would want Jesus to worship them, not them to worship Jesus. There's no shortage of people who want a political Messiah, no shortage of people who want a social Messiah, an economic Messiah. And that's not why he came. And there's a lot of people who are peddling false religions or shaded or colored religions in terms of leaning this way or leaning that way. 
Any belief, any religion, any faith that points to anything other than Jesus Christ is on the wrong track. doesn't matter where it comes from or who it is. And when we live life our way, in the end we too will be like the crowd on Friday morning shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We may not use those words, but the behavior is still the same. So in our lives today, who are the money changers, the sellers of cattle and doves? Oh, maybe not four-footed beasts that we're selling, but what are we selling? Ambition? Goals? Dreams? These people wanted to use religion for personal temporary gain. That has not changed. People today still want to use Jesus for the same reason those money, those guys use the temple. What, what can it, what, what's in it for me? If I go there, what will it do for me? How much can I get out of it? Jesus very clearly explained to the people many times before this week happened, there's only one or the other. It's me or the world, but you can't have both. So, are we worshiping King Jesus? Or should we say, I'm worshiping King Jake, or King Bob, or King David, or King Bill, or King whoever? Either Jesus is king, or I'm king. Not both. There's one. One is king. And whoever is king in my life is revealed by how I worship, what I'm doing. Many of our lives... And this world, many lives in this world have simply no room. So in closing this morning, I just want to ask this question. Does Jesus have the rightful permission in my heart and in your heart? And you may ask, well, what does it really mean? Simply this, who's on the throne? Who's in charge? If you and I are walking with Jesus, it very soon becomes evident in how we love one another. The greatest commandment Jesus simply said is this, love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, and mind, and heart, and your neighbor as yourself. Honest, open, transparent living like the children. Praising God, worshiping Him for who He is, without agenda, without goal, without any other motive than just worshiping Him. So let me encourage us to take time to walk with Jesus. Yes, it will not be easy. It will mean sharing the pain and the struggles. But that's worshiping Jesus. That's what it's about. And then we will walk in peace and comfort and in holiness. Jesus came to give his life on the cross. We cannot do that. But we can surrender our life to him for him to use us as vessels for his glory. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word to us. And even though the story is far away in terms of time and place, it is as close as our own heart and reality of where you want to live. And nothing has changed in the human heart. You want to live in our hearts today. You want to fellowship with us. The temple of your time you had to clean out. Or maybe there's there's some cleaning in our own hearts to do. Things to clean out that do not please you. And so, Lord, may we be open and transparent. Invite you in. Open the doors wide. And just worship you as king. In your name we pray.